Hello and welcome back to the Optimizing Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Marty Kendall. On this show, we take an engineering approach and speak to the experts about the insights into weight loss, fasting and nutrition, as well as real life people about their journey of nutritional optimization. And we're finally live with uh, with Rob Wolf. Thanks for coming on, man. Such an that honor. was the best two person conversation that's ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> we were amazing in the warm up. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's yeah, like my so, whole jujitsu career. The warm up is everything. <laughs> <laughs> Such an honor to have you on. I'm just saying. Everything I've done is basically built on your amazing work and setting the foundation for nutrient density and uh, everything I've done. And, and way back in the day, uh, in 2012, developed a, a document that was my plan for our family and how we'd dial in our nutrient density and help money get our blood sugars dialed in. And um, everything I've done since then is basically built on that, built on the foundation of your work and Dr. Bernstein. And um, yeah, real honor to have you on. So um, the, the the big audacious goal of this is uh, can nutrient density save the world? And I've got this vision that if we get everybody focused on nutrient density, getting the nutrients they need from food, they'll not just optimize their health, but they'll go seeking real food that's good for them and good for the planet. And uh, hopefully end this thing of plants versus animals divide that is such like noise so much of the right. time so really exciting stuff it, it, it is and there's something beautifully uh, fractal about all this you know if we look at uh is it possible that optimally feeding an individual human would as we stepwise this whole process is it going to lead to food systems that are actually something that we could come back 10,000 years from now and they're still functioning because, you know, mm. people ask questions all the time, like, well, can regenerative ag do this? Can regenerative ag do that? I think there's still a lot of questions, but it's ironic. There is really solid agreement that the current system that we exist in, the industrial row crop food system, is unsustainable, both in the methodology that is producing the food and in the outputs that are making the, the westernizing population of the world sick. And mm. so we are going to have to do something different. What exactly that is, I think, is still up for a little bit of debate and, and mm. uh, pissing match and whatnot. But, man, what a better place to start the conversation than let's seek out optimal nutrient density and then yeah. let's riff from there. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm going to teach you about paleo. Um, this has been your baby and uh, you were a massive basically the driving force behind the paleo movement, which basically peaked from um, in 2014, would you say? And it's been on a, on a downtrend since there. And then you've been fairly involved in the keto movement, which seems to have peaked around 2019. So I suppose the, the question going forward, uh, you know, it's like choosing the best parts of your two children and creating a Frankenstein's monster from that. If you could choose the best parts, what would you take forward? And if you could say, well, those are the bits that we wanted to leave behind from these two movements going into the future, what would you, what would you say? Yeah, you know, paleo is interesting in that it, it provides, and, and, you know, maybe ancestral health more broadly, but paleo provides some 
some insight into the potentiality around nutrient density. And then I think mm. it also makes us aware of immunogenic foods. So we have mm. these kind of two, two things there. And then if we motor through that, if we're thinking about nutrient density, it, it and then I would even put the nutrient, uh, uh, immunogenic foods and maybe a, mm. a side cart, but let's figure out how we do kind of metabolically with carbohydrate versus fat. Mm. You know, some, I, I'm just one of these people I've done everything I can think of to improve my metabolic flexibility. I don't want to be the guy that, you know, gets an orange here and there and some blueberries here and there. And that's kind of my oh, optimal crash. thing. I would love to, to have a little bit more than that, but yeah. that's just where I operate well. So, and, and like I've vetted that I, I still tinker and try to find ways like I donated blood to reduce my iron overload and hopefully reduce systemic, you know, oxidative stress to be more metabolically flexible. And it didn't really do that much for me. I see it really benefit other people, but mm -hmm. I think if we take that, that nutrient density idea, very protein centric, figure out if you operate better on fat or carbs or combo, and then just pay attention. Like, do you have any GI distress? Do you have any kind of autoimmune type things like, like creaky joints or some neurological issues? Like, uh, for, I got to say probably 10 years, I was ascribing what I thought was blood sugar dysregulation to mm. an egg intolerance. Like I was wow, yeah. seriously <laughs> intolerant to eggs so and I ate almost every day. The eggs and grains. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So I think that, you know, with that, um, I don't know that we hit every single stone that you would want to turn over with nutrition, but man, you really, you get probably 95% of people, 85% of the way to the middle of yeah. the bullseye. And then we can start riffing and iterating and whatnot, but with a, a really simple heuristic that shouldn't be super controversial. Like we can, we can start sorting and shuffling people in a really effective way. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, and then the next trend coming, um, seems to be the, the the vegan movement which or plant-based or whatever the hell that means i suppose the thing that i'm of uh, probably a big advocate more than most people in keto and paleo for nutrient dense veggies which provide a lot of the harder to find nutrients for a lot of people if you can tolerate them because uh, right. you know, that, that's just where the numbers lie but you know plant-based is so nebulous it's just basically what does plant-based means it's just don't eat animals and that just degrades into potentially the, the, the worst possible diet you could have. So I sort of wanted to turn back the clock and look at where we came from and uh, where we might be going, which could be bad, uh, could be good, could be completely scary. But I suppose we can dream. We can say, what do we want our future to be like and how can we create it from here? So um, everything's about technology in this game and, and we've, uh, you know, way back from developing stone tools to get more nutrients um, from, from brains and bones and then creation of fire helped us to, to grow bigger brains and uh, the teaching to the, uh, the the teacher here. But then 10,000 years ago or so, we, we discovered agriculture and how to domesticate grains. And then our population took this step change basically about 10,000 years ago give or take, we don't have exact data, but, um, uh, and then that sort of motored along from a fairly flat line rate to a, a fairly steep rate more recently. So yeah, that's, um, everybody talks about how can we feed the world? But I think another question is, how have we got here? How have we created this population? Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to talk about population explosion and, and uh, you know, 
what's created that, but I think that's a really important factor. And um, I think these guys, Harbour and Bosch, who patented the ammonia fertiliser production process in 1905, have probably had the biggest impact on our nutrition over the last 100 years or so especially. So they initially worked out how to take methane, turn it into ammonia for use initially in the in the world wars for explosives and then in the 1930s 1940s it started to to ramp up really aggressively and uh it just facilitated this population boom around that 1940s 1950s 1960s up to 2.1 percent per year so fascinating statistic here that about half of the world's population wouldn't be here if it wasn't for synthetic nitrogen fertilizers which is just mind-blowingly incredible and and what are we doing are we just perpetuating that process and i don't know whether you have any i I published an article on regenerative agriculture a while ago and had this chart in it and some people said you know our ability to extract natural gas is basically unlimited it's a unlimited supply and it's like okay if, if it doesn't end what happens it's a fairly dystopian future if we keep on fueling our our nutrition our food system with just empty calories from natural gas but if it does run out what happens i don't know do you have any educated thoughts on that well i think that if anything there's an important point to to look at like i like the historical view um 1970s, 1980s, there were groups of folks that said, we're going to run out of fossil fuels, like we're going to run out of them and this world is going to end as a a consequence. And now we're in this ironic spot where the same kind of flavor of folks are saying, we have too goddamn much of this stuff and the world's going to end as a consequence. So that's (laughs) one thing. And I would overlay that amidst like climate change writ large and a lot of kind of Malthusian doomsday type stuff and uh, uh again this gets out into like kind of social political things which will piss people off and and can get you canceled and whatnot but it is interesting that as societies industrialize and they get wealthier people have fewer children um th- this is just kind of one of these natural processes and we're maybe 30 years away from lifting the totality of humanity out of abject poverty and mm. and then you know, and so there's kind of an interesting moral dilemma there. Like, mm-hmm. does the developed world prevent the developing world from getting the same kind of privileges and, and yep. ease that, that we have? Yep. And and uh, it's fascinating, even in developed countries, people say, but we use a lot of resources. We do, but we get really remarkably good at using fewer and fewer of those resources, like the mm-hmm. aluminum per capita that is used decreases because we're able to make things thinner and smaller and mm. packaging innovations and, and whatnot. So I'm kind of in that Matt Ridley-esque, uh, a, a rational optimist camp where I, I don't see technology fixing every problem that we have, like overfeeding the world, terrible calories that are engineered to be hyper palatable and impossible to, mm. to not eat too many of them. That's a pretty big problem. But at the same time, I think that we do have some fascinating opportunities to regionalize our food systems and, and things like that. Like this is where I think food sovereignty is a, and national sovereignty is a really big deal in some of these multinational corporations that um, operate outside the auspice of governments are really dangerous. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, they could be really problematic. So uh, I'm in kind of a, a spot where I make everybody angry, like conservatives and more progressive people get really cranky with me because 
I don't fully buy the Malthusian time bomb population bomb angle. I think that there are mechanisms that can really set that right. Mm. I also think that it's um, super, uh, it, 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 I, I fail for the word here, but um, not hubris, but so remarkable that people would say, well, I'm benefiting from a modern, you know, first world existence, mm. but God forbid China and India get that because we won't mm. be able to deal with it. It's, uh, yeah. Are we for sure not going to be able to and do it? What, what mechanisms do we put in place to make that whole process difficult for those folks? Yeah. But then at the, the same time, um, I think that like multinational corporations owning the intellectual property of our food, which ironically is very amenable to this plant-based process mm. where you've got genetically engineered foods and, and patentable materials that are pushed out and, and to the a that make it all yeah. happen. Yeah, man, that's a, I, I see some real problems there, but yeah. I also see some ways through this and ironically more decentralization, more sovereignty I see as being the, the primary solutions in, in that whole story. Yeah. yeah that, that, that's the biggest thing that blows my mind that I just got, I don't have an answer for this. It's like, do we want to continue to feed the world so we get unlimited population growth and where does that tap out where does that end can we engineer can we create technologies that enable us to continue to thrive as the population grows because like like you say you can't say the third world has to starve so the healthy people can be less fat and metabolically healthy it's just this mind-blowing dichotomy that i just go that's something that um it's a really interesting question that I can't solve. <laughs> yeah, you know, and as it stands right now, we have no problem creating calories. We have mm. a terrible deficiency in creating nutrition. Mm. Uh, we totally. we overproduce calories by about 50% for the global population. So if you just want humans alive but not thriving, we could adjust our yeah. population up about 50% if we were just really, really good at making sure that nothing went in landfills and everything got fed to people. But it's also pretty clear that the food that we're feeding people is so, super suboptimum. In the yeah. United States, uh, we the health systems in the United States have an expiration date on them. Uh, the yeah. Congressional Budget Office has a projection, projection by 2030, 2035, that the, the United States basically becomes insolvent from diabetes-related costs alone. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's that huge. ignoring all these other the, things, the, Medicare, the Medicaid. The world is going to implode due to our yeah. obesity and, and diabetes. Yeah, and that's just one problem. We've got probably 20 <laughs> problems like that that you, you kind of stack together. And the American healthcare system sucks, but every developing nation is facing this. And it's interesting. China is actually getting way out ahead of this. They recognize that they cannot let their westernizing population get sick the way that we are it will destroy wow. their economy and so they're actually doing some interesting things to try to get out in front of that um the singapore healthcare system is interesting in that they have a very kind of market signaling mm. oriented process where they have health savings accounts for both the poor and for people that that you know can afford to put into their own health savings account but it it puts some skin in the game and provides some you know kind of cost control mechanisms and whatnot but you know we it, it at the same time that we face a challenge everybody focuses just on kind of like calories and number of bodies but there's this whole like economic potential calamity that we could face mm. if 
we feed people in a way that makes them so sick that it's it's mm. untenable to be able to deal with them. And Diana Rogers and I, when we we talked about a little bit of this in Sacred Cow, when you just think about the carbon footprint of dealing with diabetes, yeah. the dialysis tubes and the syringes, and the, I mean, Dude. on and on, it is jaw dropping. We didn't get to put a lot of that material in the book because it was already kind of huge, but there's massive resource allocation there just dealing with sickness, you know, to say nothing yeah. of, of the, uh, you know, the kind of economic infrastructure that shifts over to try to deal with that. Yeah. And the loss of productivity due to people. Yeah. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So um, in, in um, Wired to Eat, you had a bonus chapter that completely fascinated me that, that looked at what happened after the Vietnam War and how the farming practices changed. So not just did we get a focus on, you know, fossil fuel fertilizers, which just ramped up production, but in the, in the 50s, 60s, things changed. Um, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, it was an interesting confluence. And luckily, I was able to recycle that chapter and put it into Sacred Cow. So we we did finally get that one in <laughs> in print. Uh, but I thought it was just so important, kind of what oh, you're yeah. doing with, with this, you know, like, how did we get here? So we have a little understanding about all that. And, you know, we had, I think most of the folks that follow you will be familiar with like some of the Ansel Keys story and that, you know, wasn't entirely on point with the with the you know like the uh, seven country studies and and whatnot but it definitely had a lot of impact like it, it mm -hmm. definitely influenced uh, some people at key points in in government and then it was right around this time that uh, uh you know richard nixon played a, a really interesting role in this he was um behind in the polls he needed a, a large conservative base to support him and he had this idea of reenacting some farm subsidies to to kind of endear the the farming base to him, and it worked. He got reelected. Uh, this uh, farm subsidies program got rolled out, and in short order after that, we saw a shift from the the four food groups to the you know the food pyramid, which was mm. very kind of grain grain based, very uh, low fat in orientation. So long as it was low fat, you were good to go. And that's where we saw things like snack wells, you know, come come online and got the stamp of approval from the American Cardiology Society and, and stuff like that. And it was also right around that time that I think that the process for converting high fructose, uh, converting corn into high fructose corn syrup had been established for quite some time. But folks figured out a way to really do that at scale and yep. for very little cost. So mm. we had this situation where we were producing lots of food and then we started getting lots of wastage of that food. And then there was kind of a thought of, well, why don't we engineer this stuff to have a longer shelf life? And this was kind of the birth of these these interesting um, interplay, the the sub the subsidization of our food system. Oh, yeah created this overabundance of calories and really cheap kind of garbage calories. Mm -hmm. And then we couldn't just waste that, that food. So it kind of went hand in glove to the development of what we would, you know, call the, the modern junk food industry, which it, it mm -hmm. benefits from a subsidized food system. So, uh, you know, and this is kind of where we are today. And the interesting thing for me, and I know you've fought this battle a lot, you, you know, you'll get the low carb jihadis on the one side and then the, you know, the folks on the other side of the camp and they're like, well, it was all carbs driving this. And then other people say, no, our fat 
intake yeah. is increased. And the reality is that it's kind of shitty fats wedded to garbage carbs. And because <laughs> nobody's just eating um, totally. table sugar, nobody's no. just eating flour. People are eating things like Doritos and snack wells and stuff like that that have been engineered to be hyper palatable and, and have every flavor combination imaginable. Mm -hmm. And it works beautifully for getting people to eat this stuff. And mm -hmm. I, I, it's so fascinating going into a modern supermarket. You'll see a two liter bottle of soda and it will be cheaper than mm -hmm. a one liter bottle of water. And I am <laughs> stupefied by how that happens. Like this thing has not, not to mention the vegetable oils and the sugar, which are like dirt cheap. It's the, absolutely rock bottom cheapest source of calories you can get and it's just so high profit margin because it's subsidized and yeah hyper palatable engineered and people just can't stop eating it yeah long long shelf life and everything and so uh we have a lot of problems to unpack with that you know and the, the massively misaligned incentives and it, it's interesting i wouldn't be surprised if the bulk of this stuff gets sorted out in the developing world because yeah I, I, i've i've had outreach from some places in the Caribbean and some places in Central America, some people fairly high up in the governments there where they're like, we can't afford to let our population go down the route that you guys are going. Like, no, you can't, you know? And uh, so there's some significant awareness there. Um, it's always challenging though, because these food companies make huge amounts of money, the, mm -hmm. you know, petrochemical, uh, 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 you know, industrial ag, lots of money. So it's pretty mm. easy to pay people off and like, Hey, you can let this thing slide, you know, and, and uh, that <laughs> look so over there. don't look at this. Yeah. You know, so it's going to be challenging to find people with real integrity that they're looking down the road and like, we have to protect the health and kind of the sovereignty of our, our populace or we're, we're going to be, you know, doomed uh, similar to the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose this is the data that I've seen that I can't, look away from it's like this is this is a big deal so over the last this is the usda data over the last hundred years fats in our diet have just continued to increase since we worked out how to extract them from seeds using mm -hmm. hydrogenation carbs actually dropped and then came back up with the big ag sort of push in the 60s proteins stayed fairly flatline and then you know you've got massive injections of vegetable oil all over the world just cheap, easy calories. And from the 60s, our obesity is just tracked with the increase of calories from fat and carbs together. Right. And as you said, as they've come together to a similar sort of autumnal proportion of fat and carbs together, similarly, these engineered foods that never happened in nature, very non-paleo, um, we get overeating and, and obesity just skyrockets. So... And it's not the, the meat and eggs or the fruit and veggie, veggies or dairy. It's the you know added fats and oils and flours and cereals that have just rocketed up, fueled by the you know fossil fuel fertilizer based cheap empty energy. And you know saturated fat is always pointed at as the big boogeyman, but it's actually gone down as a percentage as everything as obesity's just rocketed, and it's the poly and monounsaturated fats from seed oils that have just continued to to ramp up and fuel the obesity epidemic basically so that's that's just data that you can't look away from but 
Meanwhile, the the, the plant based Eat Lancet, you know, every every new iteration of the the big ag USDA, you know, Eat Lancet, whatever you want to call it today, is not only funded by all these companies that have a lot to benefit from, um, you know, it's just more of the same big agriculture, USDA food pyramid, carbs with fats, and you know, the veggies are 3% of energy, uh, peanuts are 6%, um, and, and meat products are abysmally small. So it's just absurd to, to look at what they're recommending going forward. And this is the diet that'll save the planet. But are we just headed for this? This is this is the dystopian future of Wally that is just. I think where where we're potentially heading if we just keep on fueling with empty calories. Yeah, it, it's it maybe worth mentioning. You know, there was a, a time in my life when there was childhood diabetes, which was type one diabetes, and then adult onset diabetes, and those two Venn diagrams didn't really overlap. And now mm. I think the youngest mm. documented. Uh, case of insulin resistant type two diabetes in a human now is like 18 months old where the, the, the child ended up on insulin or, you know, secretagogues and, and whatnot. And that was unheard of 30 years ago. So there's clearly something that has changed. Um, and we do still bicker over, you know, the exact mechanisms, but, but by hook or by crook, we're, we're overfeeding ourselves in some way under nutritioning ourselves by, by extension. And we have a hell of a, a problem that we're going to have to unpack with all this. Yeah. Um, so how much do you think the, I suppose the biases are just in inherent sometimes and you like, you make a judgment based on your beliefs and, but how much is the whole fear of fat and saturated fat and animal based foods driven by just a belief system underlying religious economic that, you know, they believe it, 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 the, the fear of saturated fat and fat is sort of useless, but motivated by big agriculture to sell more of their agricultural products. Yeah, it, it it's interesting. I mean, it as a baseline, this kind of vegan centric worldview is very sexy, very soundbite worthy at mm. a it, intuitive level. It makes a a ton of sense, e even though intuition fails us oftentimes. And that's where we need science to, to get in and, and parse this stuff out and, and go beyond our assumptions. But, you know, if you adopt something like a vegan diet, you will live forever. You'll never have any type of disease. Uh, you will save the planet. You are not harming animals and you are instantly morally superior. And like that's in, and it's soundbitey like that and, yeah. and uh, everything from eating world health yeah it, it, world health organization down to the people we bicker with on social media by that and then to to offer a reasonable and and not as as a hyperbolic a response requires kind of a mini phd course in <laughs> economics, thermodynamics, ecology, you know, I mean, you have to do a remarkable amount of unpacking to just address, well, is the greenhouse gas contribution of grazing animals the most concerning feature of climate change? Yeah. A lot of people say it is. Many more people believe it is just because, you know, it gets thrown out there and it kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. And and then uh, 
Well, actually, lo and behold, that's not the place to look. And it's part mm -hmm. of a biogenic cycle. And so we should probably look at this very carefully because otherwise we're going to start, uh, uh, you know, vilifying termites and shellfish on the ocean floor and, and uh, the, the, uh, the understory of the Amazon rainforest because they're all massive methane and greenhouse gas producers because that's what life does. It produces greenhouse gases, yeah. you know? So, we, you know, but that's a lot to unpack. You have people just kind of check out. It's not very sexy. Um, the economic incentives for talking about that, it's, it's difficult to get scale there. You're talking... You're suggesting a way of producing food that's very decentralized, very regional. Um, no one entity really owns the whole process. Whereas mm -hmm. right now, I think it's six companies produce 95% of the world, uh, the, the, the food consumed globally. So wow. it, it, you know, it's really nice if uh, those, those folks that control that messaging also control the food system and they have a really elegant, although flawed and, you know, incomplete model that suggests that this, uh, you know, removal of animal products from the diet is going to fix all that ails us. And if mm -hmm. they're, if they were right, it would be great. But unfortunately I think that they're literally a hundred degrees wrong in this whole story. Yeah. And there's so many motivations for perpetuating that belief system. And, you know, it's just the same story just in different guises and now it's plant-based, whatever the hell that means sustainable whatever the hell that means but you know i think we've got to start thinking in terms of not just the minimum cost the minimum energy cost to grow our food but what provides nutrient density what actually regenerates the planet in the long term and, and how do we like you've set out amazingly in sacred cow what's what's the long-term implications of this if we one option is to continue to just make the cheapest nutrient poor food possible or another one is to let's guide people educate people to invest in food that will not only nourish them but nourish the planet so yeah i suppose that's my my big hairy audacious goal that you know how do we how do we educate people to 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 do that to nourish themselves and invest in things that will grow the planet so it will be here in ten thousand years and in a place in a form we want to live in Right, right, in a form that we can live in, you know that, and that's yeah. one thing that we don't have to move to Mars, you know. Right, right. It, that's one thing that chaps me on the like we're going to save the planet. The planet will be here. The question yeah. will humanity be here, and this is something that um, the hubris of this proposition almost makes me angry. Like if I didn't have kids, I would probably be advocating for the implosion of society just to just to see people kind of have a wake up call of like, oh, wow, things can be really, really bad. But the the proposition here is that we might save ourselves. We might save humanity. And there are a lot of people that don't think humanity is worth saving and that we're yeah. this horrible parasite and, you know, uh, 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 blight upon the earth. I'm really not of that camp. I think that humanity is amazing and definitely worth saving, but it's going to take a really nuanced approach to this thing. And, and, uh, uh, I don't see nuance winning very many days <laughs> at this, at this point, you know, with cancel culture and kind of the, the interesting interface of like big tech and, um, kind of social political topics. It's very hard to just even have discussions about this, yeah. you know, suggesting that animal husbandry might actually be of benefit for mitigating climate change and, and for addressing, say, like different social justice topics. Mm. 
dude, that's a, that's a, that's a spicy meatball. Like you can get in a lot of trouble by just saying, Hey, can we have a conversation around this? Maybe I'm even wrong, but can I, this is my thought. Can yeah. we have a discussion around this? Tell and, me why and, I'm wrong. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I think that the robust, you know, you, you talked about um, what happens if we just have a, a single monocrop culture. Um, you know, it, what, what was your planet in, in Sacred Cow, your uh, fictionary? Oh, it was Grass World. Yeah, Grass, grass World. world. That, that, that was a brilliant yeah. analogy and, and just the importance of having animals as much and diversity plants as all mixing can. together. Mm-hmm. Ecological diversity is where it's at to make a robust, sustainable planet for the long term. It's not just minimum cost agriculture that takes empty calories, empty energy from methane, basically, and injects it into the monocrop culture um, food system and then into humans to just grow bigger, more humans that... Right we're not growing higher quality humans and to continue to improve and involve and we're going to need to be high quality humans so we can continue to improve rather than de-evolve so yeah it's a pretty scary prospect you you know and and even on that energy side even if if uh, the world decided let's say some whiz bang engineer in australia develops a, a fusion power tomorrow and we have unlimited energy. And so this energy constraint and the carbon footprint is a non-issue. Like we literally mm-hmm. have unlimited energy. And so we could produce row crops till the, you know, to the end of, of the, the, the earth. And we could use all that to, to grow, um, meat in a vat and, and, you know, uh, synthetic meat and all this type of stuff. We still have this real bugger of a problem that we're losing our topsoil like crazy. And so mm-hmm. this is where there's multiple dead ends on, on this story. So even if we solve the energy problem and the carbon footprint problem from, from food production in general, nobody knows exactly how many more harvests we have. Like there's numbers thrown out. Oh, we have 60 mm-hmm. harvests. And when you really look at the data on that, it, 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 it's not there. Like it really depends on the region and the situation and all that type of stuff. But there is an expiration date on our Mm. current industrial row crop food system. And that is actually something that is very well understood. Mm. And this kind of planet of the vegan model is the only way that that can be done is via the industrial row crop process. Like it's Mm. kind of ironic. The only thing that you could operate at scale that could in theory go on necessitates the involvement of animals. And even in our, our current system, like, cattle are used as nutrient upcyclers. So when you harvest your field of corn or wheat or rice or what have you, they bring cattle through there to eat the crop Mm. residue. The Mm. cattle are fed the the leftovers from ethanol production, both industrial and and more for, for booze. And so you know, as it is, there's some amount of usage of, of animals, particularly ruminants in the upcycling of nutrients and re-nutrifying our, Mm. our farmland. If you remove that wholesale, as many in this kind of vegan centric model suggest, that's gone. And and then we are we are stuck in this scenario in which the Haber-Bosch method is is in incredibly efficient so long as you ignore all the externalities. If you ignore the fact that it destroys our topsoil, if you ignore the fact that it uh, uh, destroys huge tracts of our oceans and creates these dead zones, it looks great on a short time scale, it's but so on efficient. a longer time scale, 
it yeah. starts breaking down. And this is something totally. that makes me crazy about economists. It, it's like the system isn't that efficient if you really factor in all these other externalities and the fact that there's an expiration date on it. That system yeah. will fail once topsoil is gone. Yeah. And the only way to regenerate the topsoil is to bring the animals in and, and you know, have some time of resting for those yep. soils that gets nutrients back in there. Otherwise, we're just burning through the same soil, just putting a few, you know, potassium and nitrogen and, and into the soil. And that's all we're getting out. We're not getting out yep. any nutrients because they were gone 50 years ago when we started using these aggressive farming practices. So that's a a good segue to, to some more data and charts, which, you know, are close to my heart. But this is the potassium change in our diet over the last, you know, you can see it's dropping from 1940s as we started using these aggressive practices. And um, and this is pot potassium versus satiety. So basically as mm. our diet contains less potassium per calorie, we eat more similar to the protein leverage hypothesis we mm -hmm. want. You know, we have to keep eating more until we get the protein we need, until we get the potassium we need, until we get, you know, sodium is actually in this analysis had the highest correlation with obesity as sodium content of our soils dropped, as a, of our food system dropped, you know, obesity went up as we chased more nutrients from the food we eat. And there's a massive correlation between foods that contain more sodium and the amount we actually eat so we just keep on eating until we get enough sodium similar with calcium um, magnesium it's just this amazing relationship from the data that shows that we keep on eating until we get not just the protein but all the nutrients right. in adequate quantities and ideally optimal quantities so um, you're a big fan of uh electrolytes particularly so any any thoughts on that from a satiety and, and human functioning operational what what role the electrolytes play in their body it, it's really interesting clearly it's self-serving because i'm a co-founder of elements so i want everybody <laughs> to, to buy it and everything but it, it is interesting in that when we look at the most tightly regulated physiological parameters in our body I would say pH is probably the most tightly regulated, like uh, uh, the body just battles to keep within very tight parameters. Mm -hmm. And that's because our enzymes only operate within these very specific parameters. If you get too high or too low in pH, you feel terrible or you die. And, and it mm -hmm. happens rather quickly. The only thing secondary to that really is, is electrolyte status. And so mm -hmm. this is something that it really makes a lot of evolutionary sense that, this would be very tightly regulated and that there would be kind of evolutionary rewards for seeking out foods that are adequate in these, particularly mm. sodium and potassium. You know, I mean, all mm. of life, every neuron that fires, every muscle that twitches, it's sodium potassium pumps. So, mm. and, and interestingly, as an aside, protein rich foods tend to be mm. the richer sources of sodium and potassium, you know, so there's, so then it, you know, protein leverage hypothesis, again, it becomes kind of fractal. We only need yeah. to address this to get all of that, you know, and so we the, don't need the alignment to between protein and nutrient density is incredible. Like as you eat, yeah. you know, more nutrient dense foods, they contain more protein and vice versa. You just can't separate the two. So right. nutrient density is, and protein are all interrelated. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do see that it, it's fascinating that if we reimagined a, a system 
in which I, I mean, just if rivers weren't dammed and you still had, you know, flooding of areas mm. and you had nutrients that were getting reestablished. I, I read a paper that was kind of chilling that was talking about arboreal forests that are quite far inland in places like Europe and the United States, where once there were uh, salmon, huge salmon populations that would mm. make their way upstream. Uh, these areas are becoming very phosphorus de uh, deficient because there was a time when these salmon would make their way thousands of miles inland mm. and then be wow. eaten. And then the scat from the animals would re it, it, you know, invest phosphorus wow. into the soil. And then that would eventually make its way back down to the, the ocean because of, of damming, because of uh, decreased fish populations. These inland arboreal forests are reaching significant phosphorus deficiency status now because of the disruption of that whole thing. And, and, you know, who could have thought, like, I, I live in an area where the, the hydroelectric development, you know, post-World War II was amazing. And it, it's a big part of the, where we got energy to be able to do all the stuff that we did, but who would have thought that the knock-on effects could be significant problems? Like these arboreal forests are now experiencing greater beetle infestations because they're not as healthy due to, you know, micronutrient deficiencies yeah. because yeah. of a lack of, of salmon making their way upstream for 70 years. Who would have seen that coming until we started, yeah. you know, messing with the system. Yeah. Um, speak, speaking of salmon, um, I'll just show the omega-3 chart. There's an amazing relationship between omega-3 and satiety. Like we just don't get enough omega-3 and, the adequate intake is completely inadequate. And as you eat more, you reach a stretch target of a lot more than the minimum RDI. Satiety kicks in. Um, cholesterol, interestingly, has dropped a lot. But cholesterol and omega-3 are the two fats that we actually crave more of. So mm. we need more of these. Um, and we seem to, you know, as much as we've feared cholesterol in our diet, now being... Uh, exonerated as a nutrient of concern, but uh, cholesterol is something we need in our diet. And similar with B12, B12 in our diet has dropped. And we've got a massive appetite for, for B12. So these are all the animal-based foods that uh, we're just not getting enough of in our diet. It's plants and animals. Potentially, I don't really care if you're eating more plants and more animals, but you need these nutrients wherever you get them from. Or we'll just keep eating more. So yeah, right. it's a it's a scary projection of you know as our nutrient density keeps on being depleted by the way we're growing food, we just can't stop eating. And you know, no matter how much you track your calories and try to restrain, and you know, you've got these dopamine circuits that say, "I need food. I need more nutrients for my food. I'm going to just keep eating." So yeah, it's a scary train that's going to be hard to get off. Well, and from an, from an engineer's perspective, you know, it, it really probably is particularly scary because you see these um, multiple layers of redundancies all leading to the same endpoint. You know, yeah. if I'm deficient in this and this and this and this, it's all it all has mechanistic drives to yeah. increase hunger. And yeah. unless you're in a scenario in which, uh, you know, this dystopian future you know, the, the bottom of your door slides up like a prison cell and a certain amount of food is slid under the, you know, the door and that's what you and your family get to eat, then I yeah. guess we will control hunger and satiety. But um, oh, we'll, we'll control intake, but the hunger will control be Control intake, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah.
Yeah. So yeah. Um, I suppose. Yeah. Um, how how do how do we bring that together to to focus on nutrient density? We've um, we've created a system where we've quantified nutrient density. You talk about a free market world where you've got this type of health system and this type of belief system about foods and let's just make them all compete so that's sort of what we've done with nutrient optimizer and and optimizing nutrition and um, we've got a leaderboard from our last masterclass city who was at the top was eating um, organ meats and making her own head cheese and then you've got karen here who also got 100 a perfect score with all her micronutrients was on a vegetarian diet and she mm. you know optimized the hell out of her diet and smashed it and both of them have radical improvements in their health as they just seek the nutrients in their food. Sure, some people may have religious or ethical beliefs that they don't want to eat meat. That's that's fine. Um, an omnivorous diet tends to be optimal and easy to get all those nutrients. But, um, yeah, I'm just excited about the potential for just allowing people to compete for nutrient density. And when nutrient density is at the focus, you get um, you eliminate the crap foods that are low satiety and low nutrient density. This is a chart of nutrient density versus satiety that we've calculated. Then right at the top, you know, watercress, asparagus, spinach. You can only eat so much of those foods. They're incredibly nutritious. But if you try to get 2,000 calories a day worth of them, you explode. So right. <laughs> you eliminate those. You've got the seafoods and then the, the beef which uh, and, and red meat, which is incredibly useful source of protein it's bioavailable it's cheap it's easy to get and uh you know if, if you're just eating the the crappy carb plus fat products of industrialized food system you're uh, you're just going to be sitting down here in the bottom left corner just eating and eating and eating until you you know end up one of those majority that are, are metabolically deranged so right yeah. right my hope is that we can um attract enough people who want to make a change to try it to focus on let's let's focus on getting the nutrients you need from food don't care if you get them from beef or spinach but you know have give it a go and uh optimize your diet and see what you come up with and that just squashes some of the arguments and and allows people to come together around a common goal right i i think it's brilliant and uh, honestly the work that you've done in this area is in in my opinion the are arguably most important contribution that we've had in this nutrition space i mean no 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 joke like it uh ted Naiman's work is right in this this genre with like the pe approach and when we start looking at um how remarkable the overlap is there like when you look at the bernstein mm -hmm. diabetes solution like managing one of the more complex metabolic you know conditions of of a human being um, well, you've got to be really nutrient dense, like, and, mm. and you have to be very mindful of the carbohydrate load. But then if we aren't constrained just by type two, type one diabetes, mm. then it starts opening up more carbohydrate availability. But again, mm. with a, a, an eye towards that nutrient density mm. side of this story. Mm. So I, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And even a, a nutrient dense diet isn't full of crappy, empty processed carbohydrates. It tends to be lower in carbohydrates. Right. And sort of lower in fat by most people, and it's protein focused and, and right. nutritious and incredible. So, um, uh, any other thoughts on how we can use our ingenuity to engineer our, our way out of 
situation we've got? What's, what's, what's your big, hairy, audacious goal for all this? Oh, man, this will some folks will like this. A lot of folks will hate this, but I, I honestly think addressing the payer side of this. Now I, I know it's different in, in some places like the UK and Australia and whatnot, where you've got this uh, kind of uh, centralized uh, feature of the healthcare system. But I, I find it very, very difficult to align incentives. Like it, it, mm-hmm. you, you can only carrot and stick people so many ways when, when there's kind of a, a centralized feature to that. But I really like, if I could wave a magic wand, it would be amazing to land in a state or a smallish country that was like, we are not going down this path. And so we had some sort of a process where people would be incentivized, pick paleo, pick vegan, pick whatever mm-hmm. you want, but we're going to play to these metabolic endpoints. You know, maybe mm-hmm. it's LPIR score or something like that, like mm-hmm. a protein insulin resistance score or whatever, like having some quantifiable endpoints would be great. And then we use something like the nutrient optimizer to keep track of where folks are mm-hmm. going. So we look at what the endpoints inputs are and then the mm-hmm. endpoint of say like metabolic health. And then we just go from there and, and people are, are, pardon? See which one wins. Which one wins. And, and, you know, I would not be the least bit surprised if for some people, a circa vegan diet wins, you know, maybe they do a little bit of shellfish or something like that. And I wouldn't be surprised if some other people are, are damn near carnivore because they have some like gut issues that it just don't, don't make them super amenable to a, a lot of, uh, you know, vegetables, but they, you know, they get really selective about the amounts and types that they use. But we, we set up this process where people have skin in the game and we have some kind of objective input and output parameters that we can look at and really assess where it takes both the population and the individual. And the ironic part of that is that's not that complex. Like it sounds complex, but it's really not with modern apps and the ability to track and input and whatnot. You know, I think that there's some really interesting opportunities there. There's actually a couple of, of outfits that are now starting to, incentivize health outcomes, not just quote healthy behavior, but quantifying the outcomes. And then you, if you do X amount, then you get this much of a discount buying Nike products or doing this and doing that. And my understanding is that the ultimate goal for these outfits is to become insurance companies also, Mm -hmm. and then offer, you know, really amazing rates to the folks that are, are taking care of their health. And the other interesting thing about all that is, you know, people talk about like resource scarcity and, and you know, uh, equal access for folks and everything. If we just deal with the the 8,000 pound gorilla in the room of, of metabolic disease within um, westernized societies, mm-hmm. we have so much goddamn money to throw at every conceit like cancer and and yeah. rare genetic diseases. Like if we weren't dying in the droves from metabolic disease, we would have so many resources to address everything else. Like mm-hmm. it, it literally healthcare would be free, but not from kind of like the socialized medicine perspective yeah. where like, okay, we're actually paying a lot of taxes and it's getting redistributed. It's that if somebody gets hit by a car or they fall off a building or they get a, 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 a you know, an infectious disease, then we have to deal with that. But almost everything else that we deal with is metabolically driven. And so there's all these resources waiting to be reallocated to deal with all this other stuff, pre-existing conditions, autoimmune disease, you know, and even in that autoimmune disease world, 
we know for a fact, it, it is so crystal clear that if you eat in a way that provides adequate nutrient density, that is low in the, the immunogenic foods, those endpoints improve also. So, you know, if we could get out ahead of that, instead of it being an implosion of our healthcare system, it could be an explosion in health. And like even, even the, the most marginalized in our societies would have their needs taken care of. There, there wouldn't be a, a limited pool that we're dealing with. It's literally mm -hmm. like, Hey, what else can we tackle and just like make it, <laughs> make it go away because we're, we're crushing this stuff. Yeah. You'd have all this available research funds that you could throw at all the interesting diseases yeah. that you wanted to solve because yeah. so many of the, like you said, cancer and heart disease and is so many of those things are related back to diabetes and obesity. And if right. we got people eating the way that is appropriate for them and optimize their health and so many of those things, some of those burdens would go away. And so much of the focus is just on how can, what the drug or treatment can we develop to manage the symptom? And it's like, right. you know, the money's in the symptom management after people get sick. And it's just like, this is stupid <laughs> unless right. you just make money out of sick people. Right. Crazy. Um, so, to, to wrap up, what, what's on the horizon for Rob? What's your, uh, what are you playing with? You've, you've, over the last 15 years, have done so much, achieved so much. You're um, investing in a healthy rebellion community in a big way and just knuckling down on, on those people who want to be helped, which is a really exciting thing. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. You know, uh, we, we developed the Healthy Rebellion because we, we experienced some of the kind of big tech cancel culture stuff. Like our mm. website went from, you know, pretty significant amount of traffic. And then we woke up one day and 97% of the traffic was gone. Wow. And we were among a group of folks. It was an interesting mix. Like there were some folks that I think are pretty far out there on the fringe, like some very anti-vax and whatnot. But the interesting thing is like the low carb seen the Venn diagrams with like really hardcore anti-vax. Like there's a lot of, there's mm. a remarkable homology there. Like there, there's a lot of overlap <laughs> on that. Um, but I would say that some folks like myself kind of got hoovered up in that. Uh, mm. I don't know. Some people hate me. Some people think it's all ridiculous. I feel like I have a fairly balanced, reasonable approach to this stuff. Mm. I definitely have my own thoughts, but I'm, I'm not, there's not many Hills that I'm willing to die on. It's kind of like, Hey, if that's working for you, great. But, um, but it, it caused us to pivot and we pivoted away from the standard social media approach because I was really nervous about being in a cul-de-sac that could be closed off and mm. then just like a bubble like jettisoned, you know? And so mm. we, we developed this healthy rebellion group and we capped it right around this thousand, 1500 uh, person cool. mark. And what's fascinating about that is it's plenty large enough to have a very vibrant community. Like there's mm. lots of interaction, lots of super smart people in there, you know, posting, writing material and whatnot, but it's small enough that you kind of, you get to know people in there and it's a yeah. legitimate community. And because there's yeah. not an algorithm pitting us against each other, mm -hmm. we still have our pissing matches and squabbling and everything, <laughs> but we actually seem to kind of work through it. And so one thought is to, to figure out what, what makes that thing function and then start creating other healthy rebellion entities. Cool. And they would be entirely autonomous. They would be entirely separate. You grow it up to about 1500 people and then another one pops off and another one pops off. So that's mm. a, a thing that I'm, I'm tinkering with. And then I've been working on this medical risk assessment problem for, yep. you know, 
10 years now where uh, back in Reno, when I lived there, the uh, Reno uh, police and fire department interfaced with the, the medical clinic that I'm a part of. And they identified 40 people that were at exceptional high risk for type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Uh, we got those folks on kind of a lowish carb paleo type diet, modified their sleep and exercise as best we could. But based off the changes in their health risk assessment numbers, it's estimated that pilot study saved the city of Reno about $22 million with a 33 to one return on investment. And so mm. I've been noodling on how to take this thing and scale it. And I think the, the screening part we've got figured out pretty well. We've got some interesting incentivization uh, opportunities, but we really have to address the payer piece and the way, mm. particularly in the United States, the way the, the payer system is so broken, um, it's going to be very hard to do, but interestingly, word has gotten out about the work that we've done. And so again, uh, some places in the Caribbean, some places in Central America yeah, yeah, yeah. have expressed interest in trying to pilot study this stuff. You know, let's yeah. take a small town, 30,000 people, Let's cool. set up the incentives in a proper way. Let's get them integrated with their local uh, uh, food systems and mm -hmm. and really get them re-excited about their traditional food ways. You know, yeah, it's wow. it's um, the westernized uh, processed food has supplanted most of the mm -hmm. indigenous food systems in a lot yeah. of areas. And there's kind of a status that's associated with eating. Yep processed food. And that's something that I think we, we, it, and it's always tough. Uh, here's the, here's the white dude from the other <laughs> country that's coming in to like save you. But I think just saying, Hey, you guys weren't sick before when you were eating mm. your traditional food ways and, and mm. not eat whatever you want to eat, but maybe what you were doing was better than yeah. eating all the garbage that these companies are, are selling to you guys, you know, yeah, you see the same thing in Vanuatu and the Australian mm -hmm. Aborigines. It's just horrific that the Western food comes in. It seems to blow them up and give them diabetes even quicker. And they think right. it's a status because they can eat these Western white man foods that are shipped in from China. And in Vanuatu, it's amazing. They're growing the most amazing food in the world, most nutritious food. They all bring it to the market, trade it for, to, to, to the white people for the resort and uh, yeah, and, and it shipped to China, and the Chinese little Seven Eleven store is selling them all the imported crap that's right. just making them diabetic in an alarming rate. So it's just, it'd be wonderful if if you know a few little communities like that said, let's turn back the clock and let's use modern technology to you know improve our diet and show how it could right. work. And yeah, that that and that's could hopefully be, be modeled that the rest of the world would follow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where it would be incredible if folks in those communities, because you or I going and trying to talk to these communities, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough sledding, you know, but somebody in that community understanding this kind of ancestral health nutrient density model, but they're mm -hmm. from that community could mm -hmm. articulate this message and just kind of be like, what else do we have to lose? Like <laughs> really, where, how much worse could it be than what we've got right now? You yeah. know? And we definitely and, don't want to follow America's trajectory because like, uh, as you say, their economies will collapse way before America's yep. will. And their healthcare yeah. systems too. They, they will not be able to, to, to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. Where can people check you out? Instagram, Das Rolf Wolf. I, I, I'm, I have a presence on there, but I mainly write stuff and my assistant dumps it on there. Really, if folks want to talk to me, the Healthy Rebellion is the only place to get some some FaceTime at this point. Uh, we have the Healthy Rebellion radio where my wife and I uh, answer mm -hmm. questions weekly. 
and uh, Sacred Cow, uh, sacredcow.info. We have all the information about the book, the film. Um, I, I I know that you talk about all these topics a lot. Mm. Uh, I know that probably your your the folks that follow you are pretty switched on with all this. Mm. But the thing that I would implore folks to do is don't believe me or Diana about mm. any of this stuff just because maybe they like us or they had some success. Like, man, get in and tear the book apart, tear the references mm. in the film apart, really understand what we're what the case is that we're making here. Mm. And if you have folks that are curious, they're like, well, is eating meat going to destroy the planet? It's like, that's a really interesting proposition. Let's mm. unpack that and really mm. make this an evidence-based kind of kind of mm. process. What do we know? What do we don't know? What are the assumptions that are, are being worked with here? Yeah. Um, because it, it's a lot to unpack. And it's a very, again, a very elegant um, story about animal husbandry being the, you know, um, the kryptonite of our total food system, but it might also be entirely wrong or, you know, very largely wrong and, and very miscouched. And so if we get that wrong, if we respond in a way that this is, you know, it's kind of like, um, when people will, will do the, the driving simulators where they will, um, they'll, they'll make a time lag on like the steering and the brake and the gas to simulate being drunk. Like if we don't have proper Intel, if we don't have good information, then we're going to make really terrible decisions. Yeah. And those decisions yeah. may actually make this whole process worse. Maybe Diane and I and folks like us are wrong, but it would be really helpful to, for folks to dig in and really understand if we mm. are or are not. And if the flip side mm. of this is, is inaccurate, if uh, animal husbandry isn't, the doom of us all, both from a health and ethical and an environmental perspective, the man, we really need some muscle to help on that because it, uh, uh, it's, there are statements like the science is settled. This is the mm. consensus and whatnot. And when have we heard that before? I mean, saturated mm. fat and cholesterol mm. and whatnot, you know, I mean, we've, we've played this game before. So, yeah. um, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that entirely made sense, but I would just encourage people to, yeah. to dig deep on both this nutrient density piece, but also the interface between yeah. nutrient density and a sustainable food system. And what does that really look like? And what are the implications for individual sovereignty of nations of people, all these, all these other like really gnarly, hairy problems that people are facing? Yeah, I'm fascinated by nutrient density, but I think the sustainability and regenerative agriculture and the case you've put forward in sacred cow is just incredibly important it's just you know the question potentially facing our modern times to ensure we get to where we need to in the future and we can engineer our way out of the current situation we've got and the the greenwashing that's coming so often and is so well funded is just saying the exact opposite to what you're saying so like you say get in there understand the argument don't just understand the sound bites it's, it's a yep. really really important question and it, it's beyond just being selfish to to have abs like you keep saying it, it's about how do you eat in a way that regenerates the planet um that will give your body what it needs but also will nurture the planet for the future and ensure we've got a planet we want to live on in ten thousand more years so yeah really right. exciting and you must love uh, moving on from fat cut protein carbs and fat to you know save the world in the regenerative agriculture well it uh 
I still get drug into protein, carbs, fat, but you know, it's, it's interesting because the, um, one third of the book was, uh, the Nutrivore argument that we made, which is your nutrient density topic. Mm -hmm. And, and Mm I, out of all of nutrition, I think that that is the most scientific way to look at this. And, you know, again, hat tip way back when to Matt Mm -hmm. Lalonde, like he, Mm -hmm. he got in and really. He was kind yeah. of the one that, and you've, you've given plenty of acknowledgement to him. He, yeah. he cracked that topic open where it's like, this isn't about caveman. This is about nutrient density, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, it should de-emotionalize the whole yeah. topic, you know, and yeah. make it very straightforward and, you know, nutrient density, appetite control, you know, neuroregulation of appetite, like you layer on a few other little pieces to it and you have a very Mm -hmm. elegant model there that, um, you can sit down with somebody at the Harvard school of public medicine and Mm -hmm. maybe change their mind on this stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, because you're using the same language and in theory, the same standards that they have, but they've never actually looked at it properly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, do you agree that you need nutrients from the food you eat? Yes, no. Okay. Yes. Let's talk about the foods that actually provide those nutrients. Why the hell is nobody looking at that and when matt came on the scene he sort of flashed up and did this weekend study on uh, investigation of nutrient density and you talked to him and then uh, you know chris had talked to him you did a ahs 2012 presentation and i went this is freaking incredible this this is this is the game changer and then he went off the scene it's like what the hell <laughs> I don't so know if somebody you... needs to pick this up and continue to run with the baton. So that that's been the last nine years of my life, completely yeah, infatuated by that concept. Yeah, and yeah, like thank said, God you you, you grabbed that. Yeah, I tease yeah. Matt that he did a a, a Doctor Manhattan like from the the Watchmen, uh, you know, uh, universe where he became omnipotent and he's like. I can't deal with these people anymore. And he just poof, disappeared to another galaxy and started life anew, you know? Yeah. These little people annoy me. Yeah, he's I'm, like, this I'm is out. too annoying. I'm going to go start life in some other galaxy and do it correctly this time. Anyway, if you're talking to him, tell him it was an amazing concept. And um, yeah, congratulations. Will do. Thank you, Rob. Um, such an honor to chat. And uh, thanks for an hour of your life. And, um, and get back to the family and have a great afternoon. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Rob. See you, man.